Phone calls, when they come, they're interruptive, aren't they? You're usually in the middle of something, and all of a sudden the phone rings. And I don't know about you, but as a pastor, when the phone rings, it usually means not good news. Unless it's one of my family members, and you can always tell when the phone rings if it's an opportunity for us to, to eye chat, you know, to FaceTime with, uh, with one of our grandchildren, one of our children, Vancouver or North Carolina or Texas. A lot of times when you see a number, you know that more than likely there's something that's going to happen that's going to sort of interrupt your day, that's going to be very intrusive, that's going to cause you to stop doing what you're doing and alter your course and do something different. And as we study these next 40 days about my life's calling, it's interesting that God's call is much the same. I'm not sure where you were when he called you, but more than likely there was an opportunity for you when he spoke into your life for you to stop what you were doing and you sort of tuned into what he was saying and he was very intrusive. It was very invasive, wasn't it? It caused you to stop what you're doing and then to attentively listen to what he was asking or inviting you to do in order to alter or to change the course of the direction of your life. And you were standing there at a crossroads when you heard him call and there was an opportunity for you to say yes or to say no. Someone more than likely was proclaiming the gospel. And as a result of that, the Spirit of God convicted your heart and the need to receive Christ. And as a result of that, you were standing at a crossroads with the decision to receive him or not to receive him. And that call came from God specifically to you, invading your life, asking for an alternative direction and a change in the life and the course in which you were taking. Now, the sad reality is there are many today who, when they answer the call for salvation, don't change any aspect about their life. They receive a call, and they understand their need, and they see Christ as the example, and someone leads them into a very shallow invitation where they simply say a small, very short, very intentional prayer, and they are walked down the aisle, and they are dunked in a baptistry, and they are patted on the back, and they are sent their way. In Matthew chapter 28... Jesus, when he gave his disciples what we call the Great Commission or the Great Commandment, he didn't give us this Great Commission to go and make converts. He gave us a Great Commission to make disciples. In order to make a disciple, you have to become a disciple. So what is a disciple? If Christ doesn't call people to conversion, but calls people to discipleship, what does that look like? And should we not then do a favor to those who are considering a call while they're standing at the crossroads, deciding whether or not they're going to take the road that God is calling them on or the one that he's not calling them on. Should we say, hey, before you make a decision, I want you to understand the consequences. I want you to understand the cost. I want you to understand what is involved in making a decision. That's why we have a next steps here where people walk over to next steps. They go through Pastor Ryan's class for four weeks and they learn before we baptize them, what it means to be a fully devoted Christ follower, what it means to be a disciple, because I'm convinced that it is a contradiction to say you're a Christian and not a disciple or not a fully devoted Christ follower. There's no such thing, there's no such thing as someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm partially devoted. I'm part-time committed. 
Or that Christianity is something that I simply put on on Sunday morning when I go to a gathering like this and I put on my smile and put on my religious garb and I bring my big King James Bible and I sit in a small group or I sit in a worship service and I sing these songs and I put on this mask and I play this game of pretense, camouflaging all along the reality of my soul and the condition of my spirit. And so we come to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus is calling those that he is calling not simply to conversion, but to discipleship. And my question to us this morning is, is there a difference in the, my life's calling is not a calling to conversion, but is a calling to commitment. Is it a calling to total and full surrender? Can you come to Christ by faith Put your faith and trust in him as your savior and yet hold back from him and say, no, 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 those areas of my life are off limits. I'll give you 60, 70, 80%, but not 100% of my life. I'm convinced that when Jesus calls us salvation, he calls us for everything. There is a turning from the old life, what we call repentance, and turning to a new life, not just through faith for salvation, but turning from our old habits, our old life, our old sins, our own hang-ups, all of those old things that we once did, and turning now to Christ to live and to walk in the newness of that relationship with Jesus. And yet I find today where we're headed in the church across America is a clear, distinctive difference between what many call Christianity and what Christ calls Christianity. We are redefining Christianity in the modern church today. Where no longer do I have to follow what he says I should do or follow the precepts and the principles of the guidelines of his word and his will for my life. I can claim to be a Christian and yet contradict the commandments of Christ. But let's take a look at Mark chapter 8 as we studied last week the important aspect about what it means to be a Christ follower. And I want to zero in, as I promised last week, this one very powerful and very potent verse in verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Where he is calling those who want to follow him, you must consider the cost because it will cost you everything. Not just something, but it will cost you everything thing everything and unless you are willing to give him everything you cannot follow him for in following him means that you give him everything now I ask you what part of everything means anything but everything that word every is all-inclusive everything everything mark chapter 8 verse 34 So as you and I answer the call of Christ to give him everything, we must first understand that if I am to do that, I answer the call of Christ by, first of all, seeking closeness. The first point that I want us to look at is to seek closeness. Notice in the words of Jesus as he's addressing these people who would be or who want to be or have a desire to be his followers. He's calling them to intimacy. He's calling them to a personal love relationship, to step up, to be close and be personal. Notice he says in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. That word and is a very interesting word. It is a conjunction word linking what has happened previous to this verse to what is about to happen now. 
And we know what's happened before. We studied it last week. I know everybody slept and everybody's memory is fresh. And you remember everything I said last week, right? Right? <clears throat> There's some liars in here that will repent in the next steps area here in just a few moments. And they're on the front row, some of them. Anyway. Remember, Jesus is saying that the road that I'm traveling on doesn't lead to, a, to a, a, a throne in Jerusalem to set up my kingdom, but it actually leads to a road that leads to the cross where I will die, only to be raised again three days later. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, and then Jesus turns to the disciples and rebukes Simon Peter in front of the disciples, and now he is addressing the crowd and following that calls them the crowd. That word called means he's calling them unto himself. It means that there is some sort of distance, some sort of separation. There is something between him and them where they are not quite close enough in order to hear or to be close enough to understand what he's about to say. He's calling them to a close, intimate, personal encounter and relationship with him. Isn't that what salvation is? A calling to come near, to step from where you are toward where I am and to come in close so that you can clearly understand exactly what I'm about to say to you. He's calling, notice, the crowd. He's addressed Simon Peter. He's addressed the disciples. Now he's calling the crowd. There's a crowd of people here. This is a large number of people. We don't know how many. It's a crowd. It's a large number. And uh, they're at a distance. And there are, there are some in the crowd who are uh, on the outer circle of discipleship. And they are listening closely and taking notes. And they're trying to follow the footsteps of Jesus. There are some who are sort of, you know, not quite yet disciples. But they're considering that. And there are some who are there just because they're curious. They want to see the miracles. They want to be a recipient of some of the blessing. And so they're just there. Kind of like, you know, an accident or something happens. They just kind of show up because there's a crowd. What's going on? So they show up. They have no idea why they're there. And so he summons everyone there to step up closer, the crowd. To him, notice the word with. The word with. He's drawing the disciples and the crowd together as one congregation. Class is about to be in session. And he's calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Those disciples are the 12. They are the ones that I believe he has just had an encounter with Simon Peter. And after he told him first, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. And Simon rebuked him. And he then turned to the 12. And this was a personal, private time where he sort of, class was in session. It was the inner circle. But now he's calling the crowd together with his disciples. And notice he speaks to them. He speaks to them. Not just to the disciples but to them. Why them? You see, I'm convinced that Jesus wants them, like the disciples, to hear the invitation of what it's going to cost to follow him in advance of making a commitment or a decision to follow him. He's going to do them a favor. He wants them to clearly hear. He wants to articulate plainly exactly what is required if they want to follow him. So he speaks to them, to all who are included. And aren't you glad he spoke to all of them? Because that all of them includes us. I think it's similar to what 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow in to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think Jesus is fulfilling scripture according to Simon Peter. He's incredibly patient, not only with Peter and the other 11, but with the crowd. And he's patiently wanting everyone, everyone 
to come to faith in him through repentance so they can be reconciled to the Father. And so he's, he's drawing them close to him. Romans 8, 28, you studied this morning in your life group, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God had a purpose for Jesus being there. It was a purpose not only to die, but it was a purpose to be resurrected from the dead. And as he was raised from the dead, he would then live again so that we, through faith in him, as we die, we talked about it last week, we could then be also like Christ. We could rise from our death and live the abundant and the eternal life. God had a purpose. Jesus is fulfilling that purpose. And you and I need to understand that as Jesus, like like, like us, is to fulfill the purpose for which God had in our lives. There's a purpose. There's a reason why you're here. You're not an accident. I don't care what the circumstances are surrounding your birth, your conception, your life. I believe that all things, as Jesus is saying, work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even though Jesus would die, that purpose was for him to be raised and he would fulfill that purpose. So that in Matthew 4, we can see the reality of Jesus going down the Sea of Galilee. And he is looking for disciples to call unto himself. And as he's walking in Matthew 4 down the Sea of Galilee, he comes to the seashore and he sees two disciples. He sees two men. They're, they're fishermen, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, brothers. And he calls them. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what does the Bible say? They left their nets, they left their fishing gear, they left their boats, and they immediately followed Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18 and through 22, we see in verse 21, this important passage that ongoing even a little bit further, he saw two other brothers, James and son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They're in the boat with their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. And Matthew 4 says, immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. The purpose for which he calls us is for us to draw close to him. And in following him, the point that I want to make here is that if you hope to follow him, you must leave everything, everything here to turn and to follow him. You can't have a backpack you know the old saying that uh, there are no, no um, um, oh, um, no, <laughs> it's close though. There are no U-Haul trailers at a funeral, are there? Thank you, Brad. Are there U-Haul trailers in a funeral procession? Why is that? Because when you die, you leave everything here. And all those prized possessions you have, let me tell you up front, up front, what they do with those things, they sell them in a garage sale for pennies on the dollar. Because what's valuable to you isn't really valuable to your children. They're not. They don't have the same memories attached to them. And if you're, to, you're married to someone like I'm married to, you have somewhat of a pack rat in your family. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see those little prized, prized possessions that we have will be sold in a garage sale. Now, when, when we are called to follow Jesus and we, we move from the things of the world to get close to him, we, we have to leave him here. And, and here's, here's, here it is, because the closer you get to Jesus, the less valuable those things 
same. And that one of the main differences why the disciples, more than likely, are having a hard time grasping the reality of Jesus' death to be raised from the dead three days later is that they don't want to let go of what they're holding on to. And Jesus said, come closer, because there's something about closeness to Jesus that causes us to forget the value that the worldly things have in our lives. And maybe one of the reasons why you're having a hard time letting go of the world around you and these things that you treasure and these things that you prize is because you are not as close to Jesus as you should be. And you need to just draw closer into him. To snuggle up and say, all right, I'm listening, I'm in tune, I'm attentive. Because the closer you get to him and the further away you get from those things, it's interesting how you can just let them go. Because your eyes are fixed on him and your heart is beating for him and your ears are listening to him instead of yourself. So seeking closeness is important. Number two, we need to secure clarity. As we draw closer to Jesus, we need to draw clarity. There's a, there's a clarification that Jesus does here in this text. We look at verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, you can't follow, you can't answer the call unless you have clarity in the invitation. It's got to be clear. It's got to be crystal clear. There, there can be no breach. I don't know if you've ever been on the cell phone or not. And There's, there's that static stuff. And you, Could you repeat that again? And here they are securing clarity. And Jesus is wanting to make sure that he is crystal clear as, as to the consequence of the cost of what it means to follow him. If, that's a huge two-letter word, that little word, if. It is a condition that must be met. And if this condition is not met, you cannot follow him. If you do this. And if you don't, you cannot be called a disciple. You cannot call yourself a disciple. You know, just off the cuff here for a minute, and I did not put this in my notes today, but I can't leave it out. You know, I was thinking about Judas, one of the 12 disciples, not the good Judas, but there were two Judases in the 12, and one was Judas Iscariot, not the good guy. The whole time he's been with Jesus, the whole time, you think he called himself a disciple? You think he projected himself as a disciple? You think because he was around Jesus and in the inner circle that everybody that saw him thought, he's one of them. He was the only Judean in the group. And yet, was he really a disciple? And so we see here, he's saying, if there is a condition, he's speaking to his disciples, the 12, and Judas Iscariot was there, if Anyone would come after me if these are the conditions that you must meet if you are going to follow me. If anyone, I like that word anyone. That means any one of you here and any one of us here. He's not exclusive, he is inclusive. He is including us. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Anyone here would. That word would is an interesting word. In the original language, it means to have a strong desire, to be willing. It means that you're standing at the crossroads of an invitation. You're considering, you're weighing out the odds or the consequences or the benefits or the blessings or whatever it is. And so if you have a strong desire, you're being called and you have a strong desire to step forward and commit to me. If you would come after me, the word come means that you leave where you are 
and you make a movement to where he is. It, it's a change. It's a movement. It means that I, I, I was here. I was lost, but now I'm found. And I turn from where I am, and I make a steady progression to come after Jesus. What's the direction I'm following after him? Notice the exclusivity, the inclusivity is Jesus inviting us and the inclusivity or the exclusivity now is us following him. In other words, he's inviting them into an intimate personal relationship where they are following him. The Christian life is not a religion. It is not a denomination. It is not a convention. Whom we follow is a person, and we follow Jesus and him alone. We follow the person of Christ. We follow him. We follow me, he says. You come after me. You step where I step. You look like I look. You think like I think. You feel like I feel. You walk where I walk. You become like I am about to become. You follow me. Being clear, if anyone would come after me, I want to be crystal clear. Turn your Bibles to Luke 14. I want to quickly look at that. Luke 14. If you have an iPhone or something like that, you, you're going to be in luck because you're going to have a light behind it and you're going to see a little bit better. But in Luke chapter 14, I want, to, I want to highlight something here very quickly for us all to take a look at. Luke 14, beginning with verse 25. Jesus, again, in Luke 15, 14, 25 lays out this, this clarity in wanting people to understand, but in advance, before they commit to follow Christ, this is what it's going to cost. These are the consequences. Now, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. He attracted large crowds. And he turned and he said to them, notice he's narrowing the field. He's not interested in large crowds. He's interested in sort of narrowing the field, helping people understand that it's, it's a narrow way. And if anyone, he says to me, there's that word again, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? He's saying you're not to hate your family members, although sometimes, never mind. He's saying love them less than me. If you love your family members more than me, you cannot be my disciple. It's been one of the hardest things that Patty and I have had in following where God has led us to go is being distant from our children and now our grandchildren. And we sometimes are a little jealous of some of you who walk around the halls with your children and your grandchildren. And uh, it's tough. But we have to constantly understand that sometimes where he leads us is not where our family is. And we must love our family less than we love Jesus. Love your family, yes, but don't love them more than Jesus. Don't put them ahead of Jesus. Don't make what is, is, is good for them uh, more than what is good in following Christ. Don't put them before Jesus. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. A builder must sit down and count the resources that he has to make sure that when he starts that house, he has enough resources to finish it. Right, Mike? There's nothing worse than a house without a roof. Doesn't do much good. 
So before you, if you're a builder, before you build, he's, he's comparing Christianity to a builder. They sit down and say, do I have enough resources to build this house? And if they don't, they don't start it. You said, hey, you better count the cost before you follow me. Verse 31, how about a king who's going to war? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Who would go to war without sitting down and saying, do I have the resources that are necessary in order to go to battle and, and confront this guy and win? Nobody would do that. The point that he makes is verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, count the cost before you commit to follow me. How many people have not done that? There's a cost. There's a consequence. There is a responsibility. And there is a duty. It will cost you everything. And if whoever presented Christ to you didn't tell you in advance before this prayer that you prayed that it will cost you everything, they did you a disservice. Because a lot of times we pray the prayer and we get dunked in the water and we get patted on the back and put on the roll and then we find out, oh, I didn't realize that's what it cost. And what happens? When I came, we had 6,000 members here in a 3,000-seat auditorium. There were 625 of us here. Did they count the cost? Or did we quickly, hey, God, saved another soul, dunked in a baptistry, pat him on the back and sent him out only to reach another one, and did, we just kept repeating the same thing over and over and over again. In the last nine and a half years, we have lost, we voted out 2,000 members in one, two fell swoops of 1,000 apiece because they could not be contacted, they could not be reached, and they had no desire even to be affiliated to a fellowship or a church like Emmanuel. We need to have clarity in our presentation of the gospel and be sure that people understand. Now, now it's not going to cost you everything because you have to give everything in order to be saved, but in following Jesus, it's going to require death so that you might live. Number three, we need to submit completely. Once we seek closeness and secure clarity, we need to seek completely. Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. That word, let him deny, is one word in the original language, even though it's three in hours. Let him deny. This is an imperative. This is a command. This is not optional. He's already given us here what the condition is. Now he's giving us the command. The condition is, is what I'm about to tell you. And I'm commanding you now that if you have a desire to follow me, you must deny yourself. Let him deny yourself. I don't know about you, but that says I must, I must deny myself. No one's going to do it for me. Let him deny. That means to put aside. That means to reject. That means not to listen to. That means not to obey. That means not to follow. And there's this little self within us all that wants to rise to the throne and say, I want what I want. I have an appetite. I have a, an idea. I have a craving. I have a 
pleasure. I have something that I want, and I have deemed that to be necessary. And that is not coming from Christ. It's coming from self, and self wants to hold on to that. And he says, let him deny that part of us that continually rises to the the very center of our lives and demands to be heard and demands to be fed. Self. Every one of us in here struggles with that little puppy, don't we? And what a booger he is. Because you don't put him down once and he stays down. He keeps getting back up, doesn't he? I want what self wants. Me, myself, and I. I, I know. I'm the center of the universe. I'm like a toddler, you know what I'm saying? They, they believe that the sun rises and falls and parents are there and everybody is there just for them. And there are many Christians today who somehow allow self to rise to the place where it's the center of their lives. And Jesus says, let him deny himself. In other words, I die to self. Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When you come to faith in Christ, you crucify self. I'm no longer the center of my universe. Jesus Christ is. I have crucified. I have died to self. And he can't rise and reign and rule in my life and dictate and determine the choices, the decisions that I make, the things that I see and the things that I hear and the thoughts that I have and the emotions that I have and the direction of my life. He now is no longer a part of my life. He must die and he must continue to stay dead because he rises up time and time again to haunt us, doesn't he? Ephesians 4, 20, 24. But that is not the way you learn Christ, Paul says. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt. Your self is corrupt. And it will lead you and steer you and guide you in the wrong direction And many of us have paid the consequences of self. Notice he says, and it completes that text, through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So now we must put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self is different from the old self. And the new self leads us into obedience, into righteousness, into holiness, into conformity to the likeness of Jesus. Interesting, in Mark 10, 17 through 28, we see this, this interesting passage where Mark is sort of revealing for us this, this man who runs up to Jesus as he's traveling to the next place in which he's going to minister and speak to people. And he kneels at Jesus' feet and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, he gives him the, the Ten Commandments, part of them. And the guy's bold enough to say, I've done all of that. I've, I've fulfilled, I've been following the Ten Commandments. He said, really? Oh, yeah, I've done that. Really? Yeah. Well, there's one thing you lack. So what is it? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You know the story, don't you? We've all learned it since we were little kids in Sunday school. 
He walked away disappointed. Why? Because he had great wealth. And then there's a discussion that goes on after that. But how hard it is for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. And he's not talking about that being wealthy is a bad thing. He's just saying that we need to be careful because what happens is we, we want to come to Christ for salvation, but we don't want to give up self. And then Simon Peter makes this bold statement. Peter began to say to him in verse 28, See, we have left everything and followed you. Simon Peter made a bold statement, and that bold statement is accurate. They did leave everything, and they followed Christ. But we have a hard time with a complete submitment, complete submission, don't we? To be completely submitted in everything and in every way. And yet we must deny ourselves on a daily basis so that we can then follow the next thing that he says, to take up our cross and follow him, which means we must, are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. Point number four, you must suffer cheerfully. Uh, You don't like that, do you? I don't either, but to suffer cheerfully. Because he says, to take up his cross. He challenges us and commands us to take up our cross. Notice verse 34, and take up his cross. There's a conjunction here that leaks a commandment. Not only should we deny ourselves, we must deny ourselves, but now we must take up our cross. It's linking the two. There's the requirement. Here's what I'm saying you have to have. You must not only deny yourself, but you must also take up your cross. It would be enough for us simply to deny ourselves, but now he links the two together they are inseparable but after you deny yourself you must now take up your cross takes it another step another level and take up his cross that word take up means to lift up it means to pick up i don't know about you but that requires effort on my part seems like what he's saying to me i must make the the decision to pick it up and to carry it. Why? Because I can also make a decision, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want to carry that. And it's interesting that he says we must take up our cross. And the question is, what is a cross? There's a lot of misunderstanding about what this cross is, but I believe the cross is something that happens to us because we are following Jesus. It is a cost, it is a consequence that is put upon us because of our faith, our proclamation in Jesus and in Christ alone. We often have a tendency to want to define a cross as maybe a stumped toe. But a cross is something that happens that comes upon us because we are following Jesus and now there is persecution, now there is oppression, now there is suppression. There's something happening to us that is called a cross in response to our following Jesus. It is a cross that we carry. And we are to carry up, we are to take up, we are to lift up, we are to carry that cross cheerfully. Where do you get that? Turn with me to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Now, before we get there, I want to read Luke 14. Notice it said, whoever does not wear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you refuse to carry your cross, you can't call yourself a disciple of Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.3, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, there's suffering 
that's going to come into our lives because we have followed Jesus. Now, that's... <laughs> we're in America, man, and they're... What do you mean suffer for following Christ? It's coming to America. It's coming. It's coming. It's not just you're going to maybe lose a promotion or maybe lose a job or maybe suffer a little bit at school or, or whatever, but it, it's coming, and I believe persecution's coming to America. Therefore, it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. Notice what it says. And let us run with endurance. Pick up your cross, run with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Sometimes we miss this part. Notice what happens next. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Did you get that? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus was happy. He was pleased to carry up the cross. He was delighted to do that. He willingly left his place in paradise, in heaven, on the throne, came down, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, only to die on the cross. And he did it not only willingly, but it was his delight to do so. It's kind of like you're going to Chick-fil-A, and it says, it's my pleasure. They, they've, been, they've been told to say the same thing over and over. It's my pleasure, right? It's my pleasure. It was his pleasure. It was his delight to do that. He was happy to do that. And if Jesus was happy to take his cross, why are we not happy to take up our cross? Why don't we happily, willingly, joyfully, cheerfully do so? Acts 5.41. Turn there. Acts 5.41. We see in Acts 4 where persecution begins to come against the church. And uh, I believe Peter and John are arrested, and there's a trial that goes on, and they're released. Then in Acts 5, we see the second persecution against the church. And what happens is some of the leadership is arrested, and they're thrown into prison. But while they're in prison, we know the story. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago where an angel came and let them loose. And when the trial began the next morning, the the guard came to let him out, and the doors were locked, and he came back and reported to the, the court that was in session, hey, they're not there. It's kind of weird, but the, the doors are still locked, and I, I don't know how they got out. And then somebody runs in and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, th- those guys that you arrested yesterday, they're out in the same place you arrested them yesterday, and they're proclaiming the gospel. And so they sent a delegation out there. They rearrest them, bring them for a mock trial, and a whole lot of things happen only to end with their beating. They were beaten and told not to witness anymore. And when they're released, they go back to the church and notice what they say in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, notice this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the, for the name. They counted themselves worthy. Man, we're worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced in that. If we could find joy in our suffering, it would be easier for us to carry the cross. For once we suffer cheerfully, we then lastly can stay constant. Here's where we close. Number five, stay constant. Here's the imperative, and take up your cross, and follow me. 
And is the conjunction linking the, linking the other two things together. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You must deny yourself, number one. Number two, you must take up your cross. You must, that's the requirement, and you must follow me. You must and follow. That is a command again. There are three imperatives here. This is the third command to follow Christ. To follow him. To follow me. As I mentioned earlier, he is the one we are following. We're not following a religion. We're not following a church. You're not following a pastor. You're not following a life group leader. You are following Jesus. It's a personal, intimate love relationship where you are following in his footsteps. You are going where he tells you to go. You're becoming what he became. You're becoming like him. Luke 5.11. Turn there and we'll close. To follow him. It kind of reminds me when I was a kid and we played follow the leader. It was always someone, the designated leader. And everywhere they went, everyone else followed. If you went under something, you had to go under something. Then over something, you had everybody else. And the one that couldn't do it got what? So we are basically children following the leader, and the leader is Jesus. Wherever he goes, we go. Luke 5.11. Interesting time. Here we have this, this crowd that is honing in on Jesus. He's at the Sea of Galilee, and they're pressing in on him, and he needs some space between them and him, and he can't communicate, he can't speak, and so he sees two boats there, and he steps into one of them and preaches from the boat to get some distance from the crowd, and the one who owned the boat happened to be Simon Peter, and when he got through teaching, he said, Simon, let's go out into the deep and do some fishing. He said, hey, Jesus, you no, man, I've been out there all night long and caught absolutely nothing, man. I caught nothing. He said, come on, let's go. He said, okay, at your command, I'll go out in the deep and we'll fish a little bit longer. And he does. And you know the story, sure enough, the nests are so filled to capacity, they have to call the other, other boats or vessels nearby to help with the load. And then Simon Peter realizes who Jesus is. And he kneels at Jesus' feet and he said, ah, what a sinner I am. And Jesus then says to him, I will make you a fisher of men. And verse 11 says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What did they leave? Everything. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, just flip over right there. Jesus is on the pursuit again of another disciple. His name is Levi, and he is Matthew. And it says in verse 27, And after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He left everything. He rose and followed him. Don't miss the fact that he was a tax collector. He was a wealthy, wealthy dude. He had a lot of money. He had a place where he could get even more money. And when Jesus said, follow me, he got up and he left everything and he followed Christ. He left everything. Why? It didn't mean that much to him anymore. Christ meant much more to him than all of those things that he had accumulated. 
I'll be honest with you. I've been challenged by this text this week. I live in a nice house. I have an awesome Ford truck. Sorry for those of you who are not the right kind of people, but only a select people get Ford trucks. Anyway, right, Mike? I have a great church. I love this church, and I love these people. I kind of feel like, you know, we've been for 40 years of wilderness, <laughs> and we're about to enter into the promised land. Amen? <laughs> Some of you have been through this nine and a half journey with me. Some of you are not privy to all of what went on. That's okay. It's water under the bridge. But we have a big rock back there where we left it all and we went, you know, beyond that. But anyway, what if God were to call me to Africa? What if God were to call you to Africa? You live in a nice house. You have a nice vehicle. You have maybe a cushy job, unlike mine, but you have one. What are we holding on to? What is it that's preventing us from giving him our everything? He says everything or nothing. You know, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I got these little special compartments in my heart and maybe in my mind or maybe this bank account or maybe this residence or maybe I've, I've got all this. You know, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't cost me this. As long as you don't take me there. As long as you don't change this. And yet he says everything or nothing. As we close, what are you holding on to today that you value more than Him? Chances are there's something right now that the Spirit of God has spoken in your life that you say, This is more important than Jesus. You know what? It can even be sin. What are you holding on to? It's preventing you from giving Him everything. Would you pray with me? God, thank you as we close this time and this opportunity that you would challenge us and move us to give you our...